Welcome to Hashtag History. I'm Rachel. And I'm Leah. And as our loyal listeners know, we are actually on a season break right now, and we'll be returning with our regular episodes starting March 30th. But we had the amazing opportunity to collaborate with a fellow duo female-led podcast to cover a topic that we've been dying to cover for a really long time now. So we are so excited to have Brandy and Mickey from the Murder History Girls on the podcast. Welcome, ladies. Yes, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thanks for having us. Oh, yeah. We're so excited to do this with you guys. So for any of our listeners that haven't heard of your podcast, can you dive into what Murder History Girls is? Uh, Sure. We are a exactly what our name implies, Murder History um, duo. We look at kind of like two different sides of things. Brandy is our big history buff, and I am the true crime um, lover. So we kind of combine the two. And just do like these crazy stories that probably most people haven't heard of, but we try to like bring it out (laughs) for people. What are some of the examples of episodes or topics that you guys have covered? Oh, I was going to say we did um, a couple different ones that like some people may have heard of. Uh, Brandy did one recently on um, Bayard uh, Rustin who was a civil rights leader um, that most people had never heard of because like, when she delved into the story, like we learned that he was an, an out gay male in the sixties doing living his life, you know, this way and was a proponent of like the communist party at the beginning and everything. So it's crazy. Yeah. We definitely try to cover topics that we feel like most people even if they know, like, you know who Josephine Baker is, but you might not know, like, the in-depth things. So that's what we try to do on yeah, our show. That's mm-hmm. awesome. I love that because I think that's what we do, too, is uh, we pick kind of more hot topics, but it's things that, uh, I mean, you don't know all the details. Like, I know that you ladies also covered right. the Titanic, the sinking of the Titanic, right. which mm-hmm. we all are familiar with the sinking of the Titanic. But even when we did our own episode, I learned so much through my research. Right. That- Mm-hmm. I hadn't known previously. Right. Yeah. Now, because our podcasts are so similar in content, you know, we're 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 also into the true crime and obviously history side of things. Um, we jumped at the opportunity to collaborate with you guys to discuss none other than the infamous Black Dahlia murder. Because, yeah, because this case is so huge and there is so much to cover. We are splitting it into a two-parter episode. You can hear part one right here on Hashtag History right now. But to listen to part two, you will need to pop over to the Murder History Girls feed. And we're dropping both part one and part two on the same day, same time, um, on each of our feeds. So you don't have to wait. You can go straight to listen to part two after this one. Now... Without further ado, let's have a drink and then we'll dive into this truly tragic story. I'm Rachel. And I'm Leah. And this is Hashtag History. The podcast for both history nerds and history haters alike. Where we dive into history's greatest stories of controversy, conspiracy, and corruption. According to imbibe.com, the gallery bar at the Millennium Biltmore Hotel, which plays a part in our story today, has what I consider 
be a pretty morbid to one of their drinks after the victim of our story. And 60 years later, that drink is still on the menu. And that's what we're having today. <laughs> so this is the Black Dahlia cocktail. Um, and it contains citrus vodka, or you can substitute with um, half vodka, half like triple sec or um, citrus simple syrup. Don't skip past just how much <laughs> vodka is in this drink. Uh, you, did you notice I did that? Yeah. So it's, it's <laughs> yeah. three and a half ounces, which is like two full shots of vodka. Um, I did not do that much. I'm going to be no. up front because <laughs> it's 11 no. o'clock here when we're recording. So. <laughs> yeah. Th- thank you, Rachel, for making me uh, call that out. <laughs> it also contains Chambord, which is like a blackberry liqueur. And then Kahlua, which, as you Uh know, is like a coffee liqueur. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what to expect. This seems like a very strange combo, but you basically just shake it all in a shaker with ice and then you strain it into a cocktail glass with ice and then you garnish with a nice orange twist, which I actually did the garnish for once, guys. Oh, nice. Oh, it looks nice. (laughs) Beautiful. (laughs) Yeah. I actually went above and beyond on this one. Um, But yeah, I'm a little terrified of mixing coffee, blackberry and orange or Yes, yes, I agree. Yeah, I, coffee yeah. and alcohol. I did not get it. <laughs> what is this? What is like, that chocolate orange um, candy that people? Is that yes. The, oh, that's right. Yeah. And that's what I have to. Re- oh, oh, the Toblerone thing. Yeah, yeah. That's what I have to remind myself of. Is like okay, like coffee and orange, or like chocolate and orange. It can go together. Yeah. That's, so maybe that's it'll what be I'm okay. hoping yeah. that it'll help be for you because you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Rachel and I are going to take a sip and um tell you how it is cheers everyone cheers cheers actually pretty damn good (laughs) it kind of just reminds me of a rum and coke oh that's that's different okay not expected i i don't yeah i don't know how to describe it but it's actually very good Oh, this well, is weird. Well, and I noticed that both of your glasses um, are different shades of the drink. <laughs> so yeah. I'm well, we, <laughs> like, I would say that's that's one of two things. Yeah. One, when Leah and I aren't together, I don't really do a very good job making cocktails. That's number one. <laughs> so I could have my measurements off. Number two, I also always buy the cheaper version of everything. So like even my Kahlua is not really Kahlua. Oh, right. It's like off-brand $5 coffee liqueur. Right. So it could also be a reflection of that I bought the cheap version of things. So. No, well, that's fine. Yeah. As a former bartender, I approve either way. Oh, I love that. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. So I I missed the recipe for um, this week's episode because I'm lame. But I do have a drink to sh- that I'm having with you guys. So Yay. I decided. Oh, what are you having? Um, so there's a local brewery here called O'Connor's, which is really popular, but we really like it. And so I'm having the Rubus Cube Imperial Berliner Weiss with raspberry, which is kind of a play on blackberry. Love it. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's what I'm having. With that, you guys today. Lovely. That sounds delicious. I'm glad you're at least having something. She like, is. <laughs> yeah, I'm a team, I'm team, a team player. player. Yeah, I'm, here for, I'm here for you. And it's also two she o'clock is. for me, so it's not that yeah. early. Yeah, you're well into your, you know, Sunday. You gotta, yeah. you gotta get. It'll, get it'll be my only drink, drink something. But, you know, <laughs> Love it. Yeah, it works. Love it. Okay, well, I actually yeah. enjoyed that drink, and now that we've 
That was surprising. Uh, But now that we've gotten the drink out of the way, let's go ahead and dive into what we are discussing this week. The Black Dahlia murder is an infamous and incredibly tragic true crime incident that has continued to baffle people for decades. In fact, the Black Dahlia murder is often referred to as the most infamous unsolved murder in American history. So as a quick refresher or maybe even a first time summary for anyone that isn't as obsessed with true crime as we all are, the Black Dahlia murder refers to the murder of a 22 year old white woman near Los Angeles, California. In addition to the fact that she was an absolutely stunning looking woman, which we know is often the basis for a sensationalized murder story. Her death also became incredibly sensationalized because of how graphic the murder was. Brandy and Mickey are going to go over the actual murder later, so we won't dive into it too much here, but just generally speaking and trigger warnings here because it is atrocious, her corpse had been absolutely mutilated. She was quite literally sliced in half at the waist. Uh, Cuts had been made at the edges of her mouth to make it look like she was smiling, and it appeared as though her body had been completely drained of blood. So that's all really gross. Super gross. (laughs) Yeah. (sighs) How she received the nickname Black Dahlia is a little bit of a mystery in and of itself. We know that the black component of the nickname was given to her because of her dark hair and because she was known to wear black clothing often. The Dahlia piece is a little less known. Some say it was a play on words for a crime film that was out at the time, Blue Dahlia, while others report that the victim in this case used to wear Dahlias in her hair often. But speaking of the victim, I think that's really where we need to start. Who was the Black Dahlia? Her name was Elizabeth Short. She was born on July 29th, 1924 in Boston, Massachusetts. Her family really struggled financially during the Great Depression. And when her father's car was found on the Charlestown Bridge in 1930 with her father nowhere in sight, it was assumed that he had jumped off the bridge into the Charles River. Following this tragic incident, Short's mother was forced to support her five children all on her own. In addition to that, Short also struggled with health issues. She actually had lung surgery when she was only 15 years old due to a history of asthma and bronchitis. Short then, shortly thereafter, dropped out of high school. In 1942, Short's mom received a letter, and guess who it was from? It was from Elizabeth Short's dad. Oh my gosh. (laughs) He did not jump off into the river. (laughs) He admitted in this letter that he was obviously indeed very much alive and that he had been living in California. So when Elizabeth Short, she turns 18, she moved to California to live with her father. This was super short lived though. And I mean, really short lived because she stayed with her father for like a month or two before their constant fighting led her to move out. She would struggle for a while trying to make ends meet. She worked at an Air Force base in Lompoc before moving to Santa Barbara. And then she moved to Florida and then she moved back to California, but this time to Los Angeles. When her body was later found, she was quickly and easily identified because her fingerprint showed up twice in the FBI's fingerprint database. The first time was because of a background check that she had had when she was working at the Air Force base. The second time was because of an arrest when she was caught drinking underage at a Santa Barbara bar. We actually have a picture of her mugshot here from that incident that I want us to check out. So I just want us to kind of describe this picture. Like I looking at this, she's obviously stunning. Like this is her mugshot, which I imagine. Yes. Those cheekbones. Exactly. Um, I imagine this is like one of 
obviously like one of the worst pictures you can ever have taken and you're in like a very distraught state and she looks like a supermodel i know yeah, literally oh my gosh i know <laughs> right she was considered um they would call her like what they were calling people back in the 30s is like black irish because of her stunning hair and her pale complexion and her almost translucent eyes so mm-hmm. yeah yeah so that all of that just makes her stand out and no matter where she is i mean even in this mugshot i mean she's obviously drunk it caught her under underage drinking or maybe not mm-hmm. drunk but right tipsy, maybe i don't know but still you know like yeah she, yeah she's still getting like fierce vibe right now <laughs> yeah and what's so interesting this is a black and white photo but you can even tell in this photo that like she has these piercing like light mm-hmm. eyes yes. that contrast with her she's it's so stunning yeah exactly yeah i just wanted us to check that out because um again like i said i just imagine i guess like if i were in that scenario my picture would not look like that right. uh, <laughs> she, she's just right. you know what i mean she's mine just, would look like that nick nolte on the <laughs> she's just she's beautiful and that is a lot of why this case has been so sensationalized right Mm -hmm. that's what a lot of the the larger true crime stories that we know about like john benet ramsey or natalie holloway Uh why part of why they're so sensationalized is because these tragedies happen to such beautiful people exactly she was assumed to be a Hollywood wannabe because she was living in Los Angeles, because she was so beautiful, like we just touched on, and because some say she spoke for several years of wanting to be an actress. We don't have any hard evidence of this, though, as we don't know of any acting job she actually did. At the time of her death, she was working as a waitress. I don't know if in your research I any of you found like further evidence that she was in the acting world. They, they, I did see some reports that she had tried out. She had auditioned for a couple things, but she's never actually been um, casted in anything. In the okay. fact, they did um, uh, report that she had uh, auditioned and had been in Casablanca, but mm. they said that the scene was deleted. She was. So there's no real proof that she was in Casablanca, but I did actually see that. So, um, I, there's no proof that she actually acted in anything, but she was like auditioning. Okay. Yeah. I feel like she has to be a terrible, she had to have been a terrible actress, like to have not gotten a lot of jobs because she's so Because pretty. she was so stunning. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like you have to be really bad to not get the job. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, pretty. and <laughs> Rachel touched on it earlier, but she was 22 when she died. So, I mean, just keep in mind, like she left California when she was like 16 or I'm sorry, um, Massachusetts when she was like 16 right. and then mm-hmm. kind of no, 18. I thought she left at 18. Yeah. She, she left so, at 18 right, to at move 18. with her dad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. So, so she wasn't there that long. Exactly. Before. Right. Yeah. So she just, you know, yeah. like, yeah, I imagine she just didn't um, have like what people were like. She didn't raw talent to be an actress. But she was just this beautiful person, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Well, and too, I mean, think about like the time frame. So like what we see as beautiful now, even though, well, they were mm-hmm. calling her stunning back mm-hmm. then as well, but the standards of beauty might've been different. So maybe that's yeah. not really mm-hmm. what they sure. were looking for. Yeah, exactly. For sure. Casting, right. Because they do have like weird standards mm-hmm. of things that they look for and even today. Right. Totally. So, 
I think that's a really good point. And I don't know if any of you came across this in your research. I didn't actually put it in my notes, but when her, uh, you know, after her body was found and they released like her mugshot and stuff to people to say, like, help us identify this woman, the way that they described her was like beautiful, pale skin, dark hair, uh, horrible, horrible teeth. teeth. Yeah. Did you, did, uh, did you see that? Yeah. Teeth by Terminator. Like, quick. So maybe. <laughs> yes. That's yeah. right. Like, so I, I think Brandy, what yeah. you said is like, maybe that was part of it. It's like this mugshot that we saw yeah. of her is stunning. We didn't see how bad these teeth <laughs> are. I smiling. Don't right. yeah, I don't know. I feel like with Hollywood, if you have something they want, so even if she's beautiful and she can act, right? They can yeah. fix her teeth. Sure. So I think you were right about maybe she just was a horrible actress. And they were like, we're not going to put the money towards, you know, making right. you yeah. better. Cause yeah. Think of Re- oh, is no. it Rita Hayworth where they were like, you're great. You're a great actress. You're beautiful. Let's make you look more. white." More, yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. Yeah. 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 Cause she's of Hispanic descent. Rita Hayworth. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I think it's uh Puerto Rican mm-hmm. or I can't remember off the top of my head, but yeah. 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 So on January 9th, 1947, Elizabeth Short had just returned home to Los Angeles from a trip she had taken to San Diego to visit her, I'm going to put in air quotes, boyfriend, (laughs) Robert Manley. And I I put that in air quotes because I know that Brandy and Mickey are going to dive into Manley a bit more later. But the short synopsis is that he dropped Short off at the Biltmore Hotel in downtown Los Angeles, where she was supposed to be meeting one of her sisters that was visiting from Massachusetts. Reportedly, she was seen by some to be using the telephone in the lobby of the hotel. And she was also reported to have been seen later at the Crown Grill Cocktail Lounge, less than half a mile from the hotel. This is the last time she would be seen alive. Right. So um, you brought up Robert Manley. And on January 8th, 1947, she was actually uh, left her apartment and her roommate saw her getting into a Studebaker, which she knew to belong to uh, Robert Manley, who they would always just call Red. Now, he, Red Manley, was a salesman from Los Angeles. So, and he also had a pregnant wife at home. So he, while boyfriend in air quotes is probably the best because they were better as just uh, kind of friends. He says they were platonic. They were off and on um, kind of in their relationship. So he did in fact uh, drive her um, to meet up with her sister or she had asked him if he would meet up with her later. He said that he couldn't and that he needed to go home. So he says that he left, um, left her last seen at the hotel. She was alive and well. And they did, so they did stay together that night. Um, but he says that he slept in the bed. She slept in the chair. Okay. And when he left. All right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, At least could you have given her the bed in this scenario? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And so like, so he said he had an appointment that morning and he needed to leave. So he left um, and he would pick her up around noon to go meet up with her sister. Uh, so she ended up at the Biltmore Hotel in Hollywood. Then he drove off and didn't stick around, he said, um, because he had an appointment at like 630 that evening. So he didn't wait for her. He does say that he recalls seeing her at the hotel and making a phone call. He and uh, some of the employees saw her 
and they made this um, uh, statement to the police saying that they didn't fact see her there at the hotel alive making phone calls so as far as the los angeles police department could tell only her killer saw her after the 9th of january on 1947 uh Mm. she'd been missing for six days from the biltmore hotel before her body was found in a a vacant lot on january 15th wow right here's the part that everybody's been waiting for her body So we've discussed earlier, you discussed how like her body was found. Yeah. And on the morning of January 15th, a local housewife named Betty Bessinger was walking. She had some errands to do. She was with her three-year-old daughter. They were walking past Lamont Park in section of the city. But this time in, you know, um, in America there, you know, this is past the great depression, but most people don't realize that the depression lasted Mm -hmm. longer than like, you know, Black Tuesday. Mm-hmm. Right. It lasted for years and years and years. And so there was a, a slowdown and stop in production of things. So this area that she was walking in, which is now um, Compton area of LA, Ooh. is vacant lots area. And, and there's just very much like uh, tr- a lot of transient people. So there's a lot of like kind of trash and debris so as she's walking along the sidewalk she notices something that's white in color lying among the wheat uh she didn't think much of it at first and so because everybody threw their trash out there it is a vacant lot she did glance at the object and she initially thought that it was a store mannequin yeah and that it seemed odd that that it would be something that they were away you know Mm -hmm. uh she all thought it was very strange that the mannequin was split in half (laughs) yes she walked over with her three-year-old daughter no. in tow to have a closer look at the mannequin. And upon closer inspection, she realizes that the mannequin is not a mannequin at all. It was a woman <laughs> cut in half, mm. literally cut in half and moved so that they were not laying directly in the pieces were not laying directly in front but askew from each other. Oh, oh my gosh. The trauma that that... Oh, oh my gosh. Can you imagine? Oh. I mean, a three-year-old girl probably still thought that it was a mannequin. Maybe because, yeah. you know... I at hope this so. Point, so young. You know, but yeah. can you imagine if she actually realized? Oh. Yeah. <sighs> so Betty, who at the time was traumatized, obviously she yes. screamed in panic and then ran away from the site to our local house that was close by and called the police at which point officer um officers frank perkins and will fitzgerald arrived to the scene and then that's when they noticed that the naked body had been cut in half they confirmed her story and immediately called for backup yeah okay this is just so tragic and i think i mean we know that this is part of why the black dahlia murder is so infamous in addition to her obviously being a stunning woman and in addition to there's so much mystery surrounding this case, it's the mm-hmm. way that her body was found, just how yeah. brutal and uh, just right. horrendous it was is like, that is so much of why this is so infamous. It's, it's mm-hmm. seriously disturbing. Right. And I mean, she was dropped in a spot where she would be visible from the street. So it wasn't, like the killer was trying to hide her body. That's he a huge point. Found. Yeah. The, Lo- the Los Angeles police, when they arrived, they noticed that her body had been posed. So she was laying on her back with 
her arms raised above her shoulders and they were kind of tilted at the elbow. So just um, kind of like a crucifixion, but with your arms kind of above your head. Uh, She was uh, with her arms raised like that. And then her legs were spread open to display her down below area. (laughs) So, and she was not covered. She was completely nude out there. So you, if you look up, um, any pictures on Google or the internet, you'll see pretty much all of the photos, almost all of the photos you see, you see her up. And one of the police officers later said that he did that out of respect for the body. And this is also a time where people were not all that uh, versed in preserving the crime scene. Mm-hmm. So they were, you know, they covered up her body. There were cuts and abrasions across her body, had been sliced, as you said earlier, from ear to ear. They were three inch slices okay so imagine like if you smile three inches of your face um this cut talk about it later but this cut was said to have been done while she was still alive oh yes Mm. i know that's the worst and the investigators then believe that she had also been tied down tortured because of due to the ligature marks on her arms her ankles and around her neck so they thought that she had been tortured for several days prior you know, to her body being found. And also her body was bisected so cleanly that they immediately thought that this was the work of a medical profession, mm-hmm. um, professional because of the way that it had been spliced. Um, her body had been separated at the waist, literally in the right spot where you would sever between bones and the, and the spinal cord where you would separate the body. Uh, and so like you had to have some knowledge. This is not an accidental slice. Well, yeah, I was just gonna say, plus we know that there was like no, like as horrendous as the scene is like, where's the blood? There was no blood. Exactly. There was no blood. So this is another, that's another thing. So there was no blood found where her body was. And so they knew that the body had been dumped in that location, but this is not where they killed her and where they mm-hmm. tortured her. Mm-hmm. So somebody had to have dropped her off. So they were hoping that somebody had seen this, you know, like somebody had seen somebody drop her or drop off something and maybe toss it out or whatever. Okay. So they frequently um, would investigate homicides and things in the area. But due to the nature of this particular case, it took top priority. And because, you know, it's not every day that you find a woman severed in two just laying on the sidewalk. (laughs) Captain John Donahue assigned two senior detectives to the case. So he put Detective Sergeant um, Harry Hansen and Detective Phineas Brown in charge of this case. By the time Hansen and Brown received their orders and arrived to the scene, the news of this horrific scene had already spread it was teeming with reporters and photographers people like just onlookers again this goes back to crime scene preservation right yeah right it's not a thing you know people were just out there taking pictures Mm. like random citizens were out there taking pictures of this poor woman like not only was she being treated by the public that way you know just okay I don't necessarily know if they, the public were treating her badly. These people were not used to this. Right. So we, I do think that that's part of it. Like, yeah, you've never seen anything like this. Like it is, 
it would be so crazy. It's like almost sure. like how could they not take a picture of it? I 100% know it's disrespectful and it's not the right thing to do, but I could see why they would take a picture. You know, like, you feel like they were like, I don't know. You said you were treating her like trash. I, I don't yeah, know if they were. Yeah. I think they were just so well, like, oh my yeah, God. So I think where that came from was because that was a statement that, um, that Detective Hansen had said before that how the onlook onlookers were treating her and mm-hmm. what they were saying because they were they initially not just know who she was so they just assumed things about her while they you know as she was out there yeah yeah and we will dive into that later like the way that the media took this and ran with it and created and mm-hmm. speculated about short and her character right. it's, it's one of those classic cases of blaming the victim that like what of did course. she do of course to yeah. become a victim right. i do agree with you brandy though i do think that context is really important that like this is crazy right and and there this is before a time when crime scene preservation was really a thing and so they just let people kind of wander through this crime scene and so of course they're like mesmerized by it and so people are taking pictures and they're talking about it and, you know, rumors are spreading, yes, but I think yeah. we will dive into it more, like to see just how far these rumors got and how mm-hmm. awful they were. Hanson, like I said, he was actually really upset about all of that because he was mad that there was such carelessness and that the civilians and the officers were just trampling around the crime scene and destroying evidence. So he at least had the foresight to know that this is not, you know, um, that there's no way to solve this case if everybody's just kind of touching things and being involved. So he ordered the public to immediately clear the area and the detectives that investigated the crime scene were, you know, told to transport her body to the morgue so that they could try to get everything done as quickly as possible. Um, and as you said, they did, they did lift her fingerprints and they were able to identify her fingerprint through the FBI based on her background with the Air Force work and her previous criminal, um, record. But that identification obviously didn't take, it wasn't like an overnight process. It took a little bit of time, but they were able to get that. So, um, let's talk about, her and identifying the victim, right? So yes. like Mickey said, her fingerprints were able to be lifted. So Warden Woolard, the assisting managing editor of the Herald Express, was willing to assist the LAPD in their investigation. The newspaper had recently purchased new technology called sound a sound photo machine. Woolard believed that he could use the sound photo machine equipment to send her fingerprints to the FBI. That's fascinating. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then for the time, I mean, it's pretty amazing, right? Exactly. Technology. When Woolard spoke to the LAPD, uh, Captain Jack Donahue about this idea, they prompt, the two promptly set it into motion. So her fingerprints were first transmitted to the FBI. Um, they couldn't read mm-hmm. them at first. So Russ Lapp, a Herald Express photographer suggested that they reverse the lab process and use the prints as a negative before sending them to the FBI again. And I don't know if you guys know this, but this process is how they later did film. Yeah. Like you have to do the negative first in order to, yeah, I I found that very interesting. So, and then he had the foresight to say, Hey, why don't we flip it around? Right. So so it'll come right Mm -hmm. on the side. Um, so he reversed it. They sent the negatives to the FBI. 
Um, he also blew up the prints to an eight by 10, which made them large enough for the FBI to read more clearly on their end. Very cool. Yeah. So now they have prints. The FBI were able to identify her as Elizabeth Short. And as right. far as they knew, she was her last residence was in Santa Barbara, where she was working at a cl- as a clerk at Camp Cook. Mm-hmm. While the FBI was busy identifying her body, um, the coroner was doing the autopsy. So just like Mickey said, um, they had, there was multiple lacerations around her face and her head. There was no sperm present in her body, probably because the killer had cleaned her right. body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wiped her clean of everything. We know there's no blood on the body. So obviously he did some kind of cleaning process. Mm-hmm. There were numerous cuts like in crisscross patterns around her pubic area. Um, her pubic hair had been removed and they think that it was removed by hand. Oh my God. I yeah. know. Uh, let's That's pray crazy. that she was already deceased. <laughs> oh, I, I, you know, I mean, it's so horrible. Most of the damage done had been post-mortem though. Um, including, uh, she had, they severed her body at the waist as Mickey talked about. And, um, they said the official cause of death was hemorrhage and shock due to a like a brain trauma or lacerations to the face so horrendous yikes yeah this poor lady i mean oh my god it's such a horrible crime you know and as podcasters of true crime and also history we read the craziest things all the time right but sometimes things hit you in a way like this story does where you're just like like you feel like the victim, you know, like, yeah. So- mm-hmm. yeah. And I think we're all women. Mm-hmm. So I think we're, we all, you know, can definitely see that, that side of things Ugh. of like how yeah. horrifying right. this, this is to be just mm-hmm. a woman who was just on her own living her life. And then this horrible thing happened to her yes. and to know that the cuts happened like on her, her face happened Ugh. like while she was probably still alive, like to live through that is just horrifying yeah and there was also like i didn't go through and like in like every injury that she had but there were bite marks on her body (laughs) there's things that were done to her in the torturing Mm -hmm. process um that happened while she was alive and like i said they do believe that her mouth was cut while she was alive um they actually cut off her left breast completely oh i didn't know that i mean yeah like uh there are there's so many things that she went through and not just as like a young woman, mm-hmm. like she was a child, mm-hmm. 22 years old. She was a know? baby. Like, yeah. Like yeah. not, not that I would want this to happen to anybody at any age, but she went through so much mm-hmm. in those six days that before her body was found. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was actually just about to say was I do think all of this, like just knowing how much trauma her body suffered does lend to the theory that she Mm -hmm. was tortured over the course of several days. Mm -hmm. Like just, Mm -hmm. there's just so much trauma and, you know, having known like a general idea of the Black Dahlia murder before, you know, we did this research for this episode, I just keep Mm -hmm. learning more and more and new things and and even still Nikki you said like the stuff that we've talked about isn't even all of it like it's just so horrendous oh exactly yeah 
Oh. So now we're going to go into the investigation. So six days after the discovery of Short's body, so that's January 21st, 1947, a mysterious person called the editor of an LA paper, the LA Examiner. So they called the editor James Richardson, claiming to be Short's killer and stating they plan to lead the police on a goose chase a bit longer, just a little bit longer, but then eventually <laughs> plan to turn themselves in. Of course. Which, like, why? Awesome why? I, I, yeah. It's all, yeah. <laughs> Additionally, the caller told Richardson to expect some souvenirs of short in the mail soon. Oh, boy. Okay. Yeah. <sighs> a few days later, in late January, a lucky postal worker discovered a suspicious manila envelope addressed to the examiner and, quote, other LA papers. Why was it suspicious? Individual words had been cut and pasted from newspaper clippings to form the address along with the message. Here is Dahlia's belongings letter to follow. And I when I read this, I was like, okay, it's like early or late 1940s. I have to wonder, is this where this like trope came from? The whole like clipping different letters, like magazine letters and stuff and then sending that in is like, was this the first time that happened that that happened? I want to say that I did read somewhere that this is how that started. Now, really? I, I cannot, I cannot definitively say like that's that because it just was a theory. Um, but it say it brought it up saying that it, that became a thing after yeah. the volume murder. Yeah. So this might be where that, that whole trope comes from, which you see it in every right. like murder mystery book or, mm-hmm. or, or or movie, you know, is people like cutting letters from magazines or newspapers. Wow. Yeah. So after opening the letter, it was discovered to contain Short's birth certificate, uh, her business cards, photos, names written on paper, and an address book with the name of Mark Hansen embossed on the cover. Okay, that... That, like, the fact that her... I don't know, unless she kept her birth certificate on her. Yeah. That one is extra disturbing to me. That, like, so... Unless she kept her birth certificate on her, which maybe she did for identification or something. Um, But otherwise, that lends to... Okay, so he went This person, like, followed her back to her house. Yes. Well, it's crazy. And, like, then potentially knew her Mm -hmm. long-term beyond just her being a random victim. I wonder, though, like, is this before... ID cards were kind of a thing where people actually carried around ID cards. This maybe right. she was just carrying yeah. her birth certificate. That's a good point. As proof of her age or something, you know? Yeah. That's that's hmm. exactly what I was just thinking. Because I, hmm. I know that like uh fo- like photo identification that people kept on them became a thing in like the late eighteen hundreds, but I don't know about like right. IDs, you know, right. or like our, our what our, our modern day ID example. Yeah. Right. Because they kept what they called um carts, which were little yes. cards mm-hmm. that were, you know, given that they would hand out to people with their photographs. And that was when photography right. became like such a big thing in the beginning. So. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So all of these items had been cleaned with gasoline, which is similar to how Short's body was possibly cleaned with gasoline as well. Mm-hmm. But despite this effort, a few partial fingerprints were lifted from the envelope and sent to the FBI. Unfortunately, the prints were compromised while in transit and mm-hmm. were never able to be mm-hmm. properly analyzed. Mm. Of course. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, naturally. Yeah. 
<laughs> so the same day the letter was discovered, a handbag and black suede shoe were found on top of a garbage can only two miles from where Short's body was discovered. And it was also wiped clean with gasoline. So they made a connection there. Wow. Yeah. Months went by with no further leads or evidence discovered until on March 14th. So this is like two or three months later. Yeah. Yeah. Two months. uh, A suicide note was found in a pile of men's clothing in Venice. Rachel, do you want to read what this note? Yeah. Sure. Because I'm very interested to like why a note found in Venice would have any relevance Mm -hmm. to this. But so the... It says here, to whom it may concern, I have waited for the police to capture me for the Black Dahlia killing, but have not. I am too much of a coward to turn myself in, so this is the best way out for me. I couldn't help myself for that or this. Sorry, Mary. So that's why they connected it to the Yeah, got it. Okay, thanks. Right. Case closed. Do you see the connection now? Got it. Yeah. Yeah. So despite the suicide note discovery, no body was ever found in connection with the note, nor could the police tie the note to any person, which like full circle, it kind of reminded me of the dad, like how they found the car. Oh, yeah. He had died. Oh, yeah. Also, who's Mary? Yeah. Like, I wonder who Mary is. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So police eventually deemed Mark Hansen, the owner of the address book found in the mail in January, a suspect. Um, yeah. yeah. So Hansen was a wealthy local nightclub and theater owner and an acquaintance of shorts. And according to some sources, he also was the one to have confirmed that the purse and shoe discovered in the alley were in fact shorts. Mm-hmm. Further evidence against Hansen stacked up when shorts friend and Toth claimed short had rejected sexual advances of Hansen. Ooh. Always a bad sign. <laughs> yeah. So um, Hansen was not the only suspect, though. The LAPD apparently interviewed, get this, over 150 men in the ensuing weeks whom they believe to possibly be suspects, including Manly, the last person to have seen Short alive. Wow. Despite an exhaustive investigation, including a $10,000 reward, which is equivalent to over $100,000 today, the assistance of over 750 LAPD investigators searching everywhere in LA from like storm drains to abandoned buildings and along the river, the search yielded no further evidence. And I had read that those 750 LAPD investigators were assigned specifically to this case. Like, not just they were assisting with it or helping out. Like, this was their case. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Right. I didn't even know there were 750 LAPD. (laughs) I was going to say, that has to be the most in history. That's crazy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. A disturbing amount of people over 60 um, stepped forward claiming to be the killer. Why? Why? Yeah. Uh, but then again, it's <laughs> LA. So it's like people seeking like oh, fame of any kind. Exactly. Right? So they, they stepped forward claiming to be the killer and after the award was announced. Also, right. that should be noted too. So money was probably a big reason for them doing that but i wouldn't step forward and say i killed her i would step forward and say (laughs) right because you don't get the money if you are the murderer exactly (laughs) and here is my bank account number thank you (laughs) but all of those claiming to be the killer they were eventually dismissed as false and 
some only some were charged with obstruction of justice wow all of them weren't charged with it i don't know it should also be stated that in congruence with the lapd's efforts the fbi were also investigating it was a huge case so they ran record checks on potential suspects and conducted interviews across the nation based on early suspicions that the murderer may have had skills in dissection as you mentioned because the body was cut so cleanly Agents were also asked to check out a group of students at the University of Southern California, Mm. um, the medical school there. Mm -hmm. But again, nothing was ever discovered by either department. After a month of frenzied searching, the the case went cold. Many questioned the LAPD's treatment of the murder, particularly their, quote, shoddy handling of the one-time prime suspect, Leslie Dillon. Dylan was a bellhop and former mortician's assistant. So I'm assuming he was a bellhop at the hotel she was last seen at. And in correspondence with someone who eventually reported Dylan to the police, he uh, started providing some details that only someone connected to the case would know. Oh, God. And he, yeah, so he soon became like a prime suspect. Numero uno. Yeah. Yeah. Although he was interrogated and the police discovered some circumstantial evidence, he was never actually charged. And he went on to sue the police department over his treatment, defamation, um, and including unlawful detention and false arrest. He ultimately dropped his lawsuit, but there are conflicting reports as to whether he did, in fact, receive a payout from the police department anyway. Interesting. Yes. I I know we'll talk about it later, but the police department at this time was hella corrupt so. oh yeah yes and the lapd <laughs> yeah there's like movies about that what is the movie i'm thinking of um with uh angelina jolie where her son goes missing and then, oh the change yes. no, the change yeah. where it like totally shows the corruption of the uh, la police department at that time it's horrible yes yeah I, I was gonna say just even like the more infamous cases that we know about like rodney king and even oj simpson it's just all of that like lends to how corrupt the LAPD was. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was I think I read somewhere that the mafia had more had spent more money in the LA police force than they were actually paying their police officers at the time. Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So crazy. Now, we can't talk about the Black Dahlia case without talking about the media's involvement in this incident. We've kind of touched on this already because the media allowed for this case to become so sensationalized and the rumors Mm -hmm. ran afoul as more and more information was shared in the papers about the graphic death of Elizabeth short, the more grandiose the stories about her and the torture she had endured became stories began circulating that short was a quote call girl. Perhaps that she was even a lesbian. Perhaps she was pregnant at the time of her death. I mean, just these stories are so ridiculous. It was also reported in her autopsy that she had, you guys, she had a small uterus. So? (laughs) What does that even? Oh, I'll tell you. I'll tell you exactly what it means. When someone has a small uterus, according to the media here, they went so far as to say that a small uterus means that short was probably unable to have sex with men and that her small genitalia was a clear sign that she was having sexual relations with women and not men. (laughs) I mean, it's so outrageous. It's so outrageous. Clearly. (laughs) That is crazy. Oh my God. It's outrageous. The Los Angeles examiner plastered the black Dahlia murder on the front page for a consecutive 35 days 
right. the media and the world at large was obsessed with a Black Dahlia murder. And this obsession would lend itself to some pretty outrageous theories, suspicions, and even suspects. But that is where we are closing out this episode. Remember, part two of the Black Dahlia murder is available right now over on the Murder History Girls podcast feed. So go check it out. And if our hashtag history listeners want to find you ladies anywhere else, why don't you share your Instagram handle and your website and whatnot? So our Instagram is at Murder History Girls. Uh, You can also find us on Twitter at Girls Murder. And we do have a website. It is MurderHistoryGirls.com where you can always reach out to us. You can also get every episode and uh leave us an email if you like thank you all so much for listening to this episode and now go head over to listen to part two thanks bye thanks guys bye, bye. bye. <laughs>